Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 4, Give Us a Roman Emperor. Last time, we followed the reign of the Emperor Zeno through various rebellions and diplomatic scheming. In 488, the Emperor persuaded the Goths to head west and invade Italy, ending their century-long domination of the Balkans. The details of the war between Theodoric and Odoacer are not important for our story, but the outcome is. Theodoric won all of the major battles over the next couple of years, and then began besieging Odoacer in Ravenna. As you know, the imperial stronghold at Ravenna was very hard to capture, because it was situated amongst a series of lagoons, and could be resupplied by the sea. It proved so hard to take that Theodoric had to convince Odoacer to open the gates voluntarily after agreeing to some form of co-rule. No such power-sharing was to take place, though, and Theodoric himself apparently struck the final blow, killing Odoacer over dinner in March 493. Italy was now under Ostrogothic control, just as Spain and southern Gaul were dominated by the Visigoths. Zeno's time in office was so filled with incident that I have had to leave discussion of his religious policies until now. It looks like keeping a straight chronological narrative is going to be increasingly difficult within the Byzantine world. The religious life of the empire runs parallel to the political and military developments, and so it's often simpler to divide the story up. I hope it won't disrupt the flow too much, and I will always strive to keep things running in a straight line, whenever I can. You'll recall that in episode 2, I discussed the growing problem of monophysitism. This was the belief held by some Christians that Jesus' nature was entirely divine. The strongholds of this belief were in the East, and they showed no sign of losing ground to the orthodox position that Jesus was both man and God simultaneously. Zeno and his patriarch, Acacius, were naturally worried about what all this meant for the unity of the empire. The imperial system was now conceived as one emperor, ruling one empire on behalf of one god. To have any portion of the empire disputing who god was, was an affront to that ideal. 
Just in case you are unsure, the term patriarch means chief bishop for a particular region. The term we've come to use in the West is pope, but at this time each of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem and Rome had their own patriarchs. So, stepping back in time a little, in 482, just before Ilus's revolt began in force, the Patriarch of Alexandria died. The clergy of the city wasted no time in appointing a new man, Peter the Horse, to the position. As in, horse voice, not face. Peter was a confirmed monophysite, which put Zeno and Acacius in a difficult position. What they came up with was a decree called the Act of Union, or Henoticon in Greek, which was an attempt to mollify those with softer monophysite beliefs and bring them back into the orthodox fold. The Henoticon reaffirmed the belief that Jesus was both man and God, while leaving out the difficult word nature altogether. As was often the case with disputes like this, the Henoticon satisfied few, and in some quarters caused great anger. One such quarter was Rome, where Pope Simplicius, and later his successor Felix III, were deeply unhappy with any compromise with the Monophysites. In the Greek East, the endless theological speculation and debate were very much part of the culture. In the Latin West, it was not. The Pope in Italy had almost no monophysites to worry about, so unlike Zeno, was far less concerned with the unity of far-off provinces. Zeno and Acacius clearly wanted to appease monophysite sensibilities in the hope that the Henoticon could do what earlier agreements had done to disputes like Arianism and Nestorianism, namely isolate the extremists by making the new formula acceptable to a majority. Although the Henoticon was accepted officially by many in the church, it didn't achieve what the emperor had intended. The Monophysite communities who accepted the new formula simply continued to believe what they always had, and therefore still saw orthodoxy as something dissimilar and false. Some historians argue that Zeno's conciliatory attitude may have actually entrenched Monophysite beliefs. Rather than solve a deep division, the Henoticon may have provided the cover for Monophysite ideas to put down permanent roots in the East. Zeno's desire to appease the Monophysites also led to the first major break between Eastern and Western churches. In 484, the Emperor helped appoint Paul the Stammerer as the new Patriarch of Alexandria. Paul was a passionate Monophysite, and his rise to the sea led Pope Felix to excommunicate Acacius, the Patriarch of Constantinople, who was technically responsible for the appointment, and he in turn excommunicated Felix, causing a schism between the two churches which would last for 35 years and would not be the first of its kind. Zeno's last few years on the throne were the only peaceful ones of his reign. Sadly, he saw no growth in his popularity amongst the citizens of the empire. His brother Longinus took over Ilus's prominent role in Constantinople and had a well-earned reputation for debauchery. While Zeno's only son, also called Zeno, held even lower standing. 
he had fallen prey to the sycophants of court life and given in to his base desires. He died young, possibly of a venereal disease, shortly before his father. The Emperor Zeno, giving in to paranoia over the words of a soothsayer, had an eminent statesman named Pelagius executed, which destroyed whatever good will he had left. There was little public grief then, when on the ninth of April, 491, Zeno died of dysentery. He was about 65 years old, and had clung to power, sometimes surviving only by the skin of his teeth, for 17 years. The conflicted reports of Zeno's reign make it hard to pass judgment on him. He had a very tough experience, constantly besieged by enemies both internal and external. By the simple act of survival, though, he managed to preserve the passing of legal succession of the emperorship, which might not sound like a major achievement, but one which had profound consequences. The Theodosian dynasty had seen several weak emperors dominated by their bureaucracies and military strongmen. We saw how Leo managed to outmaneuver Aspar and prevent a Germanic takeover that had of course ended the Western Empire. By staving off coups and rebellions, Zeno was able to bring the civil service and the military more firmly under his control, leaving an important legacy for his successors. His greatest achievement, though, was pushing the Goths out of the Eastern Empire. As a people, they had done more to pull the Roman Empire apart than any other, and finally, the storm had passed. It's also interesting to see in the figure of Zeno what might have been if Stilicho or Aetius or some other barbarian man of talent had been able to rally the West during its years of crisis. Clearly it wouldn't have had entirely positive results, as the endless abuse heaped on Zeno suggests that the Romans would have struggled to accept a so-called foreign barbarian ruler. The day after his death, Zeno's widow Ariadne appeared before the crowds in the Hippodrome, and they are said to have chanted, Give the empire an orthodox emperor. Give the empire a Roman emperor. The people of Constantinople were making their feelings about Zeno entirely transparent. Ariadne's will was bound to by the ministers of the palace, and she chose an imperial chamberlain in his early sixties who she knew and liked. Anastasius. Before we introduce the new emperor, it's worth underlining the point about how the succession was made. The dynastic principle was clearly a major influence on those at court. With no obvious successor available, Ariadne was seen as the source of legitimacy. The idea of a royal family ruling the empire had of course been a reality since the days of Augustus but within the Byzantine world it would become an increasingly important reality, and the growth of power amongst certain imperial women is an interesting twist given the patriarchal history of Rome. Practically, though, the lack of alternative claimants to the throne speaks to the policies of Leo and Zeno in ridding the capital of other powerful men. Instead of competing generals battling over the throne, the succession was entirely peaceful, with great benefits for all those involved. It's also worth pointing out that the Constantinopolitan Senate were nowhere to be seen. More a social order than a political body at this point, 
no one would have expected them to have the final say. Flavius Anastasius was born in Dyrrhachium, around 430, to an Illyrian family. Dyrrhachium is situated in modern Albania and had long been an important city in the Roman network. Troops leaving Brundisium in Italy to head east would hop over the Adriatic to Dyrrhachium, and the major road in the Balkans, the Via Ignatia, would then run from the city all the way to Constantinople. His mother was an Arian Christian, and his uncle was a Manichaean, a Gnostic religious movement whose origins were Persian, but that had long been popular in the Roman world. This mixed upbringing helped foster a keen interest in theology that would last all of Anastasius's days. By the time of his elevation, he was well known in the capital as a pious and enthusiastic layman. Despite not pursuing an ecclesiastical career, he was once put on a shortlist to become the Bishop of Antioch. In fact, the patriarch Euphemius had had to expel him from St. Sophia because he disapproved of Anastasius' habit of holding gatherings in the church to preach and persuade others of his beliefs. Those beliefs included sympathy for monophysitism, and the patriarch insisted that the new emperor sign a declaration of orthodoxy before donning the purple. This Anastasius did, and on April the 11th, he was brought before the crowds in the Hippodrome. He was a popular choice, and looked every inch a Byzantine emperor. He was tall and strikingly handsome, with one black eye and one blue. Between this and his reputation for integrity, the crowd are said to have chanted, Reign as you have lived! A few weeks later, he married Ariadne, and began his reign as he had lived, in an intelligent and rational manner. The reign of Anastasius is a strange one to recount, marked by both constant turbulence and a simultaneous calm, by invasion, rebellion and riot, and also by prosperity, peace and harmony. The explanation for this lies partly in the circumstances of the time and partly in the character of Anastasius. He was both parsimonious and puritanical, or if you prefer, careful with his cash and high-minded with his morals. The complaint leveled against him by his contemporaries was that Constantinople had never been so boring a place to live. As many in church circles did at this time, Anastasius disapproved of the public sports and celebrations. Wild animal fights, pagan festivals, and the theatre were all entertainments that Anastasius looked down at, both as a danger to morality and to prudent spending. This attitude toward public entertainment created a dangerous situation early on in the new emperor's reign. The group who were most disgruntled with his elevation were the Isaurians. They had been a prominent force in the capital and the army for about twenty years now, and many of them had looked forward to Zeno's brother Longinus taking over. Naturally, Longinus was unhappy at being passed over and began to ferment discontent amongst his supporters. Those supporters were now joined by two powerful factions in the capital who I've yet to introduce, the Blues and the Greens. As I'm sure you know, back in Rome, the chariot races in the Circus Maximus were contested by teams who wore the colours blue, green, red and white. 
By the 5th century, the Blues and Greens had essentially absorbed the other teams and now competed against one another in the Hippodrome. Their organisation and responsibilities had also grown considerably. They were now in charge of both racing and theatrical performances and took on other functions, like manning the city walls. The two deems, as they were known, were partly sponsored by the state, as the cost of putting on such spectacles was beyond the wealth of most citizens, and the emperors no longer wished to encourage private individuals to gain popularity through such acts. The deems also took on a political role in society. As early as Constantine's reign, the deems had been encouraged to be a conduit for popular opinion by cheering, booing, and shouting slogans when their provincial governor came to watch the races. This slogan shouting had become a professional art form, and it was a small step for this public debate to lead to roused passions, which led to the abuse of officials, and then to turn into street violence. Blues and Greens each had their own street gangs, many of whom would slip into gang behaviour that we would easily recognise today, with complaints of extortion, racketeering and violence becoming commonplace. The political affiliations of the deems varied from city to city and the circumstances of the day. However, in vague terms during Anastasius's reign, the Blues had come to be associated with the old Greco-Roman aristocracy, while the Greens were seen as representing trade, industry and the civil service. The Greens had also come to be associated with monophysite religious views and the Blues with orthodoxy. As I say, these positions were far from fixed, but it's important to understand how the passions evoked by the races could be transformed and targeted onto civil and religious issues. In the last years of Zeno's reign, Longinus had been paymaster for the deems and had apparently paid well for his entertainments. Many amongst the street gangs now sympathised with the Isaurians as they stirred up trouble for the new regime. Not long after Anastasius took power, a riot broke out during a spectacle at the Hippodrome. The clamour had gone up against the policies of the city prefect, Julian, and when troops were sent out to intimidate the rioters, they responded by starting fires and defacing the imperial statues. Anastasius had Julian replaced, but troops were sent in to restore order, leaving many dead. The emperor blamed Longinus and the Isaurians for the incident. Whether this was true or simply opportunism, we don't know, but the Isaurians had their subsidies removed and were expelled from the city. Longinus was exiled to Egypt and forced to enter the priesthood. Many of the performers he had hired were forced out too, and the disenchanted exiles streamed out of the capital and towards Isauria. The Isaurian commander stationed there had already begun a rebellion against the emperor, and the force he commanded now began to swell with fresh recruits. The emperor dispatched the two armies based in Constantinople, or precental armies, against them. John the Scythian led one, and was joined by John the Hunchback commanding the other. The two sides met at Coteum in northwest Anatolia in 492. Despite the large numbers of reported rebels, they were defeated by the imperial forces, and many fled back to Isauria. This group of survivors turned to banditry and added to the lawless qualities of the region. 
John the Hunchback was sent to follow them up and spent several years subduing the remnants. It was only in 498 that he had fully pacified the region, and a large number of Isaurians were resettled in Thrace to break up their collective strength and help repopulate the region which the Goths had trodden over. You can now see a link running from Leo through Zeno to Anastasius. Slowly, the Byzantines had removed groups with a tribal loyalty from dominating their field armies. As we've already seen, this was a vital process in keeping the imperial system of government alive and avoiding a collapse, as happened in the West. It also meant that by the time of Justinian, he would have the armies he needed to attempt his reconquests. The following year, there were more riots in the capital, led by the Blues and Greens, and statues of the Emperor and Empress were dragged through the streets. Shortly after that, the Green faction in Antioch led a riot that was so severe that the administration of the East had to temporarily abandon the city. The specific cause of this unrest is debated, but there was no time for Anastasius to rest, as also in 493, the Bulgars stormed down into Thrace, killing the master of soldiers. I mentioned the Bulgars last episode when Zeno was searching for allies who could counter the growing power of the Goths, but as their role in our story is only going to grow, I should introduce them as best I can. Roman sources are distinctly unreliable when describing the various groups of barbarians that live beyond their frontiers. The Bulgars arrived on the Roman doorstep when the Huns began to bring the peoples north of the Danube under their sway in the 4th century. Before that, we believe they were living in the steppe lands north and east of the Black Sea. As with the Huns, their specific ethnic origins are not clear, and as with most successful nomadic groups, they had presumably absorbed other ethnic peoples along the way. It's possible that at that time they had Sarmatian or Scythian elements within them, and many historians believe they were originally a Turkic people. With the breakup of the Hunnic Empire in the 450s, the Byzantines became aware of a people called Onogundars, settled in the region between the mouths of the Danube and the Dniester. The Onogundars were believed to still be Huns, and only slowly came to be known as Bulgars by the Byzantines. Over time, they would get to know them much better. The Balkans had been under threat for many years, of course, but it's believed that around this time, Anastasius constructed the Long Walls of Thrace, a new fortification to add to the already impressive land walls of Constantinople. The Long Walls began about 40 miles west of the capital at Selimbria on the Sea of Marmara and ran all the way to the Black Sea coast. The stone and turf walls came complete with towers, gates, forts and ditches, but were not particularly effective. They were hard to garrison as troops were often needed elsewhere, but they do give us an indication of the Byzantine mindset at this time. Even with the Goths gone, the approaches to the capital were still felt to be vulnerable. Back inside that capital, Anastasius's religious policies began to cause him some problems. The emperor wanted to maintain Zeno's Henoticon, which fit his own monophysite beliefs nicely, but he came into conflict with the patriarch Euphemius. 
Euphemius was a defiant defender of orthodoxy and was working against the compromise set out in the Henoticon. He had begun private negotiations with the Pope to end the Acacian schism and further angered the Emperor by refusing to return to him the written declaration of orthodoxy he had signed on his accession. The patriarchs of Jerusalem and Alexandria accused Euphemius of heresy and of supporting the Isaurians, and at a council in 496 he was deposed. This caused a disturbance in the city as Euphemius's supporters rushed to the Hippodrome to plead their case with the emperor. He would not be swayed, though, and appointed a new patriarch, Macedonius, who was equally orthodox, but far more mild-mannered. Two years later, in 498, another riot broke out, again instigated by members of the Deems. The prefect of the city had imprisoned some Greens for throwing stones at their opponents, something that was hardly unusual. The Green faction made a demonstration in the Hippodrome, and when Anastasius ordered troops in to suppress them, they, funnily enough, began hurling stones, some of them in the direction of the emperor. Again the rioters started fires, which actually spread alarmingly toward the Forum of Constantine. Once more the troops restored order, punishments were doled out, and again Anastasius removed the offending city prefect. He was certainly not deaf to public outcry. Despite these signs of unrest, Anastasius was secure in his palace. He had the confidence of the officials and officers who served him, and during the next decade his popularity with the empire's population would grow too. Today Anastasius is best remembered for the huge reserve of treasure he left for Justinian to exploit. He was certainly a conscientious ruler, and the attention he paid to the control of the empire's finances is a great credit to him. One of our contemporary sources for the period is a bureaucrat called John the Lydian, who worked in the office of the Praetorian prefect. He claims that Anastasius's financial acumen saved the state, which had been on the brink of bankruptcy since the campaign against the Vandals. It seems to be the case that with the treasury empty and the Goths menacing the Balkans, Leo and Zeno had struggled to keep the state coffers replenished. Under Anastasius, though, the state finally began to recover. The emperor worked with his financial advisor, a Syrian named Marinus, who was eventually made Praetorian prefect, and the Count of the Sacred Largesse, John, on a range of policies. The Count of the Sacred Largesse essentially looked after imperial revenues, while a corresponding Count of the Private Fortune looked after the Emperor's personal estates. The largest reform enacted was to fully switch the Empire from payments in kind back to payments in cash. As you may recall, Diocletian had switched to payments in kind when Roman coins became worthless during the crisis of the 3rd century. Constantine had introduced a new gold coin, the Solidus, or Nomisma in Greek, which meant that the wealthy could return to paying with cash. However, much of the silver and copper coins remained of dubious value, and so payments in kind continued in many areas with the attendant problems of waste, storage, spoilage, and corruption. In 498, the new copper coins were issued and were instantly popular. 
they came in clearly marked denominations and were tied to the gold coinage. The most popular and largest of these coins was the folis. It could buy roughly a pound loaf of bread and stayed in use for centuries with little fluctuation in price. Soon after they were issued, the state stopped supplying its soldiers with arms, clothes and rations. Instead, the troops were paid a larger allowance and encouraged to buy their equipment from the state. This increased allowance meant many frontier soldiers weren't so dependent on other means of making money, including extortion. It also allowed for an increase in the recruitment of native Byzantines into a service which for the last two centuries had been viewed as a wretched existence. A new administrator was also created to help collect taxes and combat the possibility of embezzlement of the new coinage. The defender of the city, or Vindex Civitatis, would now supervise provincial tax collection instead of local town councils being solely responsible. This was a partial return to the old system of tax farming, as the job of collecting taxes was awarded based on bids of how much could be brought in. In theory, this would prevent rich landowners from putting unfair pressure on city councils to exclude them. But of course, nothing was stopping the landowners from bribing the Vindex. Naturally, embezzlement still went on, but the amount of tax the state received increased. Anastasius had less to fear from men in high places than either Zeno or Leo, and so was able to regulate official fees, curb bribery, and keep a close watch over military payrolls. He was generally disliked by the official classes because their pockets suffered as a result. The emperor was regularly accused of stinginess, and his lack of spending on pageantry and pleasure was an understandable niggle. However, several instances of Anastasius's personal generosity are recorded, and he did spend money on public works. Along with the long walls, he financed a canal project in Bithynia, and helped repair towns damaged by earthquakes and war. Also in May 498, the emperor abolished the hated quinquennial tax on commerce, also known as the Chrysagrion, which resulted in much celebration. The tax fell heaviest on the poorer classes and tradesmen, and apparently in the city of Edessa, the celebrations were so wild that they lasted for a whole week and were intended to become an annual festival. The emperor was able to make up the loss of revenue with contributions from the imperial estates, now enlarged by the acquisition of Zeno's property and of other Isaurian rebels. We'll leave Anastasius there for now, enjoying the glow of his popularity. Although it will last for a decade, or perhaps more, there are still plenty more invasions, rebellions and riots to get through. In three weeks' time, yeah, I know, we will rejoin Anastasius as he faces new challenges, including a war with our old friends the Persians. I'm also aware that I'm throwing a lot of names, terms, and geography at you that may be unfamiliar even to hardcore fans of the history of Rome. So when we reach the end of Anastasius's reign, I will take the time to look around and examine what kind of empire we're dealing with and what daily life would have been like for its citizens. I'd like to say a big thank you to Tom Sawford, 
who plugged the podcast on his blog, Making Byzantium Live for People Today, which you can find at mybyzantine.wordpress.com. And an even bigger thank you to all of you who've been posting on Facebook, iTunes, and at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. Your feedback helps shape the podcast, and your support means a lot to me. If you know anyone who enjoyed the history of Rome, please tell them about the history of Byzantium. <laughs>